Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast series, Immersa, People and Passion, sponsored by the ATTC Network. I'm your host, Doreen Bader, the Executive Director of Immersa. This week, we welcome Dr. Richard Sates in conversation with Dr. Nicholas Berthelet to discuss some of Dr. Sates' experiences and expertise. And along the way, we will answer the popular question, is screening and brief intervention effective? Dr. Sates is a professor and chair at the Department of Community Health Sciences at Boston University School of Public Health, a professor of medicine in the section of general internal medicine at Boston University School of Medicine, and a primary care physician and addiction medicine specialist at Boston Medical Center and the Graken Center for Addiction. Dr. Sates is editor-in-chief of the Journal of Addiction Medicine, associate editor of JAMA, and a past president of Immersa. Dr. Berthelet is an addiction psychiatrist and prevention and public health specialist. He is also a senior lecturer at the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. He is the current co-chair of the Immersa Abstract Committee. Welcome, Dr. Sates and Dr. Berthelet. Thank you. Thank you. I'm uh, happy to be here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here too. <laughs> so, um, first question is, um, how long have you been an Immersa member and how did you get involved in it? I think it's been about 30 years now, just about 30 years. Uh, when I was a fellow, I came to do a workshop and, uh, uh, I came to do that and, and it, it was welcomed. I mean, the submission was accepted and it was a way to become established as a known, uh, expert in the field. Because if you do a workshop at a national meeting, then, then, uh, people think, you know, something about it. Um, and, and I did know something about it at the time. Uh, and Amrissa gave me that opportunity. Uh, I also, at that meeting, I remember very clearly at the first meeting I went to, I met one of the leaders in the field at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, NIAAA, uh, and he ended up writing an editorial accompanying one of my first papers at the time. So, so connecting with um, connecting with Amersa to uh, uh, at, at an early stage in my career to to do a workshop and to meet people was uh, really important, and it it kind of set the stage for the next. 30 years of interactions uh, at, at Amersa. And so we've heard that you're past president of Amersa. What other roles did you have in the organization so far? Well, I think I've had every possible role <laughs> at Amersa from, uh, uh, from, from presenting at workshops and, and presenting abstracts uh, as, a, as an Amersa member. So that, involves there's another role as being a member to uh, then being involved in the conference uh, initially in helping with ideas for the conference on the conference committee and then um, as abstract uh, co-chair and or chair and then uh, being on the board uh, and having various positions until um, the presidency position and then uh, and then being past president it turns out that um, it, it seems now like I will never not have a role with Amersa because once you're past president, you're you're past president forever. 
and uh, there are meetings of the past presidents uh, every year. So it's been great. It's been great to have uh, initially undefined roles as a member and and participant, and continuing with that those those roles, but then on to um, you know sort of more formal roles uh, in the in the organization, being able to go through all of them, including auctioneer, which we may talk about a little bit later. One of the goals for today is to um, talk about screening and, and brief intervention. Um, so, in your opinion, why and how uh, has screening and brief interventions been important to Amersa? Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting because Amersa could cover just about any topic in uh, related to substance use and substance use disorder. Uh, but screening and brief intervention has played an important role for MRSA, and the reason I say the reason I think it has is that it's something that applies to general health professionals and to patients who are seen in general health settings, um, and it gets away from the narrow focus uh, that had been common a, a common focus for many professional organizations and even for many uh, specialists and uh, prior to the let's say the 90s or so where the focus was on the few people who ended up in treatment in middle age and uh, what screening and brief intervention focuses on is the broader population of people who might use substances or might even just be at risk to use substances and haven't even begun using substances um, and an intervention, something that can be done in a, a setting where you don't have to have a lot of specialists and where time might be limited. And so because of that and because of Immersa's focus on um, interdisciplinary focus uh, on variety of health professionals and health professionals who work outside of those specialty settings, Um, it's, it's one of the things that can be done by such professionals in those settings. And there are others too, and, and maybe that relates to some other questions in which MRSA looms large. But um, that's why screening and brief intervention has been uh, one of the important uh, uh, sort of scientific areas where MRSA has focused on research and education. Um, another related reason is, is that uh, there's been great interest in screening and brief intervention since the late 80s and, and early 90s, um, a few studies before that, but that's mostly when, when, when there was a focus. Uh, and then there was funding for people to do research, to train others, and in doing those pursuits, to come to Immersa meetings and participate and present their work. Uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, was um, a really instrumental in support for a lot of those efforts over, over decades. Um, And uh, so was NIDA and NIAAA, National Institute on Drug Abuse, National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, um, on the research side. And, and so uh, people coming to Immersa were often able to come because of support uh, for their work around screening and brief intervention. So that, that's why it's been a sort of big piece of what's paid, been paid attention to at Immersa by, by its members. So you talked a lot about... Um evidence of efficacy of screening and brief intervention uh, over the past years. So what's your, um, what's your take on the evidence of, of SBI uh, currently? Yeah, so given that I've talked about it for so many years, um, it's not an easy to, 
question to answer simply yes or no. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, but uh, the, the, the evidence depends on whether we're talking about alcohol or other drugs, a little bit uh, about the setting in which it's done or the patients who might show up in those settings, uh, and then maybe even related to age, uh, so adolescence versus young adults and, uh, and older adults. So what we know, and there's, and, and oh, I'm sorry, and also the amount of evidence. So there's a lot of evidence related to the screening, to screening and brief intervention around alcohol, much less so around drugs, although there's, there's now plenty to be able to draw some conclusions. So for alcohol, there's pretty solid evidence among adults that brief intervention has some efficacy in people who have been screened for reducing self-report of drinking. And I said that slowly and specifically because that's what we know, that if you screen people and identify that they have unhealthy alcohol use, and by that I mean the range from any risky drinking or at-risk drinking all the way through to alcohol use disorder, if you identify that by screening and then you do a brief counseling intervention, which could be five to 15 minutes or so of advice, it could be repeated um, and usually involves some feedback and um, some uh, discussion based on the principles of motivational interviewing, that that is associated with less drinking reported by people who've received that brief intervention. And I, that evidence has been limited primarily to uh, primary healthcare settings. So general healthcare settings, not hospitals and not emergency departments. And the reason I separate those out is because in those settings, usually you have people with greater severity. And it's probably the case and seems to be consistent with the evidence that, um, that, that brief intervention is much less effective possibly not effective at all for people with more severe unhealthy alcohol use, like alcohol use disorder. Now, even in the setting in which we do have evidence for efficacy, which is primary healthcare settings, that general healthcare setting where preventive services are delivered, there, um, I guess it's worth emphasizing self-report. And the reason I emphasize self-report is not that it's a terrible way to to do studies and to find out whether uh, brief intervention might reduce alcohol consumption, you can get pretty good self-reports. But it turns out that when you look at the evidence for uh, efficacy of brief intervention changing other things like laboratory evidence of alcohol of heavy drinking, or uh, which might be liver enzymes or biomarkers of alcohol consumption, or hospitalizations or emergency department visits, or driving while intoxicated, or um, uh, liver disease, or gastrointestinal bleeding, or depression, or any of the range of things that we know that heavy drinking causes, we find no evidence that brief intervention can affect any of those things. So, so it does raise some questions and concerns about um, whether there's efficacy for brief intervention for alcohol, if it only affects self-report of alcohol use and 
the the amount and this actually you discovered in an early systematic review and meta-analysis that you did nick um the amount that we can uh, reduce uh, drinking by it's a handful of drinks it's a few drinks a week on average and so the 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 magnitude of the impact on self-reported drinking is is pretty small although that could still have um an, an effect at a public health uh, level if it, if it was done with many people and if it in fact is true. So that's the best evidence that we have for the efficacy of screening inter intervention. For drugs, let's turn to drugs for a second. For drugs, we have pretty solid evidence, actually. We have solid evidence that there's lack of efficacy, that there is no efficacy for brief intervention in people identified by screening. We do have screening tools, by the way, for both alcohol and other drugs that work. They're valid. They identify people who um, use alcohol and drug other or other drugs. Um, and they identify people so long as it's in the circumstance of a research study where their confidentiality is assured. Once we get into clinical settings where the results are of their potentially illegal behavior are put into medical records, it gets a little bit more challenging. Uh, we do have some evidence that people are less likely to report under those circumstances. But in settings where confidentiality can be assured and, and, uh, um, and, and people feel that assurance, they will they will report and self-report is probably better than laboratory testing because for a variety of reasons that we won't have time uh, to go into, um, but it picks up a wider range of, of use. So for, for drugs, uh, the, the only place where brief intervention, uh, there's a signal that brief intervention might have efficacy is for cannabis and uh, in people who are seeking help. So if you have a cannabis use disorder or you're using uh, cannabis and feel like it's affecting your health and you go and ask for help, brief counseling can actually help reduce that cannabis use. But that's not in people who are identified by screening. That's in people who are seeking help, which are quite a different uh, population. And the last thing I'll say about efficacy is around adolescence. And uh, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force continues, even continued even into 2020 um, to uh, recognize that the evidence in adolescence uh, for brief intervention and people identified by screening is uh, still insufficient. And that's different from what I just talked about. There's plenty of evidence out there for adult alcohol screening and brief intervention, drug screening and brief intervention. For adolescents, the situation is we actually don't have enough evidence to determine whether there's efficacy. Uh, and I actually think that to go beyond the evidence that there's great potential there because it's much more likely to work. Um, this is much more likely to be effective in people who are just now establishing their behaviors early in life rather than in people who have established patterns, patterns of behavior for, uh, for decades. I said that was going to be the last thing I was going to say about evidence, but it's not. The one last thing I'll say about evidence is there's no randomized trial of screening and brief intervention. There aren't any. There are none. They're all trials of brief intervention in people identified by screening. So unlike screening for breast cancer, screening for colon cancer, where there in fact are trials that compare people who are screened to those who are not screened, we don't have that for screening and brief intervention. There is no such trial. It's only um, the brief intervention piece in people who are identified by screening. So what has been the controversy around screening and brief intervention, or what still is the controversy? 
So you're getting the sense that there's some controversy about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there may, there does seem to be some controversy about this. Um, uh, you know, one time, one time I was on a stage at the White House uh, talking about this, and I later found out, and I won't mention any names here, but uh, that the people in charge who were orchestrating that event um, were trying to get me pulled off the stage. <laughs> and they were trying to get me pulled off the stage because I was simply presenting the evidence and they didn't really want the evidence. What they wanted was to hear that um, screening and brief intervention was the best thing since sliced bread. And I think we have to have a little bit more room in, uh, in scientific and clinical and public health conversations for understanding some of the nuances of of, um, of data and how we should apply them in practice. And I think the controversy is a lot about wishful thinking. I mean, if we can't identify people and give them some advice and have them change their behavior, if that doesn't really work all that well, um, then we have to do something else and we don't have that something else yet. So I think there's a lot, and, and the, other, the other piece is that uh, um, there, there is a lot of reason to believe. I mean, I really wanna believe that this would work. I mean, we have we have some uh, screening tests. We can ask people uh, some questions. They seem very straightforward. They are straightforward in a sense. Um, and then we have some counseling techniques that have been proven uh, to have some efficacy in a variety of um, circumstances like motivational interviewing. Doing motivational interviewing or brief motivational interventions feels good to the people who do them. Um, and um, and it, it, it seems almost like a no-brainer, like why would you even need to test this in research? But the, the problem is that uh, when you do test it in research, you do find that uh, many people might have changed their behaviors anyway without without a brief intervention. Say somebody who you know has a terrible car crash uh, related to alcohol, and then someone in the hospital comes and talks to them uh, and does a brief five minute conversation, somebody who they've never met um, and may never see again. And then we hope that that would have some effect. Yet the person who was in the car crash has already sort of decided that they're going to change their their drinking because they had you know maybe maybe someone died in the crash and they feel responsible and so they they actually go and change their behavior. Assuming that's not a person who has addiction who can't can't change their behavior and would, would it wouldn't be enough to do a brief intervention anyway. So I, I think a lot of the controversy is about um, wanting to believe that this works, that it, there's a high probability before doing studies that you would think this would work um, and that we all wish that it would work. And then when we see the data, we maybe some sort of discount some of the uh, some of the more null evidence and say, well, it probably works. We think we should we should do it anyway. And then, and then the controversy about you know how much evidence do you need to do something? And um, for preventive care, we usually should demand and need and require more evidence rather than less because we're talking about addressing populations of people who um, have, haven't done anything, don't have a risk necessarily, or don't have a risk that we know. Uh, whereas for people with established diseases, we must sometimes need less evidence because um, they already are sick and we want to do something about it uh, right away. I think that's the nature of the controversy. And then there are political forces and, you know, where money has gone. And you don't want to say that you invested in something that, that uh, was shown to, uh, to not work. You talked about the need of um, more evidence for adolescents. Uh, but also we've seen um, systematic reviews of systematic reviews in the field. Uh, so, so what research should still be done on this subject? Yeah, I say this with a little hesitation because I have a systematic review that's 
going to come out in the next year, probably. So, but I think we probably have enough systematic reviews, except for the type that we're working on, which, which is, which is a review uh, it, to look to look at some of the details in brief interval. I think we can find, you know, we may find some um, some signals in specific. Uh, practices within brief intervention that might be the the kernel of efficacy. That if we can bring those out more, they might work better. But but I think we also need to go beyond uh, looking at uh, brief intervention as the only solution here. Uh, first, we we probably do need a study, a big study. And the, the reason this hasn't been done is because it would need to be big and therefore somewhat costly. Although although maybe the outcomes wouldn't need to be that expensive to get if you have big numbers and you can find some outcomes in medical records, is to do a study of screening versus no screening. So screening and the downstream practices like brief intervention and referral, et cetera, um, versus not screening. That could be done in a large health system and, and should be done. The, the other thing that I think needs to be done is there has not been tremendous innovation in interventions for general, in general health settings, talk-based interventions in general health settings for a long time. I mean, brief interventions were first done in uh, the early 1960s. And then uh, aside from uh, a couple small randomized trials then, most of the trials were then done uh, in the eight, starting in the 80s, 90s, and they're still going on, but of essentially the same thing that we've been working on for that's what, 50, more than, geez, almost 60 years now. That's really scary to even say that we've been doing the same thing. I think it's time for some new ideas, some new interventions, and I don't know what those are, but someone's got to, and, and I think that's actually been a consequence of resting on our laurels and saying, oh, screening and brief, inter brief intervention works. It works just fine. Let's disseminate it. It's great. It's the best thing since sliced bread. And what happens there is that researchers didn't, really innovate much because they had something they were told everybody was told this works so that's that's a, a unfortunate consequence and i think we need to now face the fact that we need something new and if, even if you do even if you're a believer in that that this stuff works the the magnitude of effects would be small from any studies that you want to cite so we need something else something more something more powerful um, and then there's just two other areas of research I'd comment on. One is we really do need more studies in adolescence. Um, the type of brief interventions are going to be different because, because the, the content is a little different and the way adolescents look at substance use is different. Um, so we need the trials there to, to determine efficacy or determine what works is another way to say that. And then lastly, um, around biomarkers, we need better biomarkers to really identify the spectrum of unhealthy use, not just um, severe unhealthy use or um, repeated recent heavy use, which is what we can pretty much identify now for alcohol with biomarkers and um, really short-term recent use for drugs is all we've, all we've got. So for clinical use and, and use in research studies to make sure that what we're identifying is actual use, we need some, uh, some better biomarkers and studies um, studies of, of um, inter our interventions that include biomarkers. So what should we teach people? Well, I, I think um, the skills that come along with knowing how to identify, and I'll use the word identify maybe instead of screen, and then intervene and manage, not necessarily brief intervention, but 
the, the ones that the skills that we've learned from screening and brief intervention, I think should still be taught. There are valid tools for identification um, and the brief motivational interventions are useful not only for substance use, they're useful for um, other health behaviors and, and they're good skills to have uh, to talk to patients over time. I, I don't think we should expect that those skills that we teach should result in immediate behavior change in, in, in people who have unhealthy substance use uh, because we don't we don't have any evidence that that will happen, but we should still teach those skills uh, for those reasons that there may be effects um, over time, and uh, I, I guess this mixes a little bit with, you know, what should we be doing um, in practice? I think I should probably address kind of both of those in tandem because we should teach people what they should do in practice, and uh, despite the fact that there's sort of modest efficacy for alcohol screening and brief intervention, no efficacy for drug screening and brief intervention, and we've got questions about adolescence, um, we still have to know whether people are using substances, whether patients are using substances. And we have to know that in order to diagnose and treat any other medical condition. There's no medical condition you could name uh, that I couldn't say, hey, we have to know if that person's using substances in order to make a proper diagnosis or come up with some sort of treatment or a safe treatment, uh, certainly for prescribing any medication in particular pain medications. Um, we also need to be teaching something beyond screening and brief intervention and doing that in practice. And that is actual treatment because when you screen or identify people who are using substances, sometimes you're going to identify people with addiction and uh, we should be doing something about that. We should be treating it and referral isn't enough. It's pretty clear that uh, most people don't complete referrals. So we've got to do something in the place where people show up and and teach clinicians um, how to do that and get the range of interdisciplinary health professionals in the right place to address that where the patients are in, um, in general health settings. And then we shouldn't expect in practice when we do five minutes of brief counseling um, that someone's going to change their behavior. Someone might, but on average, we're not going to see that across our patients and we shouldn't be surprised uh, when patients um, when patients don't change their behavior based on um, small uh, or short, short brief, um, brief advice or brief counseling um, sessions, the uh, so we so we should draw on all of these skills that we've learned in past decades about screening and brief intervention, but just um, not expect that it's going to solve all problems. And by doing it in practice, for the reasons that I said we ought to be doing it in practice. Um, we will have hopefully two other benefits. One is that patients will think that this is something they can address with their um, health professionals or clinicians. And, uh, and, and so will policymakers and, and others really recognize this as a health issue and that's important. And the second thing is that some patients will change over time in ways that we can't detect in research studies because research studies last three months, six months, they don't last five years. And it may take repeated um, addressing of, of unhealthy substance use in practice uh, to have some uh, to have some folks change. You know, the, um, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force in 2020, that's the latest statement they came out with, and it was a major change from prior statements, and they actually recommended screening. And I said that quickly. I said they recommended screening, right? They didn't recommend screening and brief intervention, interestingly enough. They recommended screening, and they recommended screening only in settings where if you identified people 
with unhealthy substance use and really with substance use disorder that you could do something about it. And the evidence on which they based that was evidence from people who were seeking help and seeking treatment. So it, it, the, there's a mismatch between the evidence and what they recommended, but even with that mismatch, they did not recommend screening and brief intervention, they recommended screening. So they're recommending screening, and then what do you do with that information? You try to do something uh, with folks that were identified by screening, even though we don't have evidence that we can do something for that population, but we can do something for people. I mean, we can't ignore people who have unhealthy substance use and have a substance use disorder. And if we can do that treatment in clinical practice, in general health settings, that would be great. And that's something we need to work on in research. So teaching practice and research sort of all come together around these areas that are, that still need a lot of work. One additional question. So what the recommendation of the US Preventive Services Task Force for training, uh, screening was for drugs, right? So what, what's the uh, situation for alcohol? Right, Thank, no, thanks for asking about that. Um, yeah, it should be clear that the, uh, the US Preventive Services Task Force recommendation in 2020 was about drugs. And that was uh, for adults, and then they still had, in, they found insufficient evidence to make a recommendation for adolescents. The task force um, has recommended screening and brief intervention for alcohol, for unhealthy alcohol use, for I think, I think it goes back uh, through various recommendations back into the 90s. So, so almost for at least two decades anyway, it's recommended uh, screening and brief intervention for unhealthy alcohol use. And that's based on that evidence that, um, that it can affect uh, self-reported uh, drinking. So what should Amarsa do? Uh, yeah, well, I, my opinion about what Amarsa should do is that it should be true to the science. It should be true to the, as an organization, it should be true to the science and, um, and it should advocate um, as, uh, as the science dictates. Um, so, and, and, uh, and not be afraid to, not be afraid to do so. That can be tricky uh, sometimes when, uh, when governments come and go or, or um, programs come and go. And just because something's funded doesn't make it efficacious. And so, and, and I think many, I think all of us at, at, at Immersa have, have really done that and have been able to um, have been able to walk the sort of fine line of you know what is the evidence what should we do with this what's good cl clinical practice and and how to mix that all together so immerse is a really good place to for that because it, we we cover um, uh, teaching training practice and and research in an interdisciplinary way and what better place to figure out how to uh, translate science into practice. In what other areas does and can Amersa loom large? Yeah, I think Amersa can uh, have a big role in in topics like screening and, and brief intervention because they're topics that go across disciplines uh, and are relevant to teaching uh, practice and research. Um, an example might be uh, implementation science, um, getting things into practice that we know work, um, and then also interdisciplinary training and mentoring. Um, this organization has been great for welcoming folks um, into the fold and promoting them along and getting them positions and roles at Immersa and uh, you know helping helping to advance their careers. So so I think there's topic areas, scientific areas in uh, substance use like implementing practices that we might know work 
as well as the sort of more um, the 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 role that Amersa can play for uh, health professionals. Uh, you know, a lot of Amersa's focus has been on health professional educators and health professional researchers um, beyond um, people who might do clinical practice and aren't involved in research and education. Um, Amersa has a big connection to all the health professional schools and, and what, what gets done at those places. Thank you for this detailed discussion on uh, screening and birth intervention. Uh, now can we talk a bit more about, you know, what, how things um, happen at Amersa and, and specifically if you could just explain the rich state's rule and its corollaries. Yeah, so I guess uh, it was, I'm not sure who dubbed it that, possibly our executive director, somebody <laughs> along the way um, dubbed it the rich, the rich states rule. And, and then I have added corollaries since, but basically it's a, it's not a huge organization. Um, it's a, a, a ter terrific organization with um, actually, you know, we often talk about Amersa as having um, more impact than its, um, than its numbers or than its, than its size. And I think that's absolutely true because of who comes and who participates and when, and therefore, when we're at meetings, whether they be in person or virtual, we like to know who's talking because that's a person who you might go to talk to later and um, and they may become your mentor or they may help with something or you may collaborate with them, etc. So the rule is to state your name and where you're from. And where you're from could be a geography or usually often it's institution, but simply to state your name and where you're from. And if you don't do that, then I will call you out and make sure that you do do that or somebody else will now. Now I've, the, I've not had to do that as much in more recent meetings because other people have. So it's state your name and where you're from. And then uh, the corollary is, and this is developed out of, um, out of uh, folks who do in fact then state their name and where they're from uh, when they stand up to ask, when, when questions are invited, uh, but then they don't ask a question. And um, that instead of asking a question, there is a speech given, much like I'm doing right now, actually. <laughs> and um, and they, there's a speech, and um, it's a long speech usually. And um, I, 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 I don't say this because I'm being annoyed. I say this because everyone else in the room is being annoyed. And what, what they, the, the corollary to this rule of stating your name and where you're from is that then you ask a question. And I want to emphasize the uh in ask a question. It's you ask a question, which has a question mark. We all know the inflection goes up at the end when you're asking a question, like, is this a question? The inflection goes up, that's a question, but also the a, uh, which means one. So you ask one question because there's a lot of other people who, who wanna ask a question too. So these really, I think, develop this corollary to the Rich Sates rule about asking a question and it being one and being in fact a question comes comes really out of um, my observations about how other people really, um, we, you know, we wanna be as inclusive as possible. We wanna bring people in, allow for more questions and discussion. That's been one of the strengths at a lot of the Immersa conferences is the, the, the conversation that happens and the questions and answers and discussion that happen after any of these uh, uh, large group sessions. So those are the rules. Yeah, so more than ever, it's very important to know the people we're working with and to be true to science where you know we have to ask one question and, and try to address that question specifically right i agree <laughs> i fully agree um now a bit more 
a fun subject, maybe. Uh, tell us about being an auctioneer. Yeah, one time I went to an Amersa meeting and apparently the we used to have an actual auctioneer. There was a professional auctioneer who was a member of Amersa, Jet Hopstetler, and he uh, was fantastic. He could do the whole auction thing, but I don't, I'm not sure exactly what happened or where he went, but he wasn't coming anymore. And um, I, I don't know how it happened that I was that I allowed someone, executive director again, uh, to convince me to to be the auctioneer for the all-important Amersa auction because it really did um, represent a substantial portion of revenue for the organization, uh, that annual auction at the annual national meeting. Uh, and that happened, I don't remember when that happened, but it was a, it was a long time ago. And, and somehow after agreeing to do it that year, it became the norm that I was expected to do it each year and then I would do it every year. Um, uh, in recent years, I've said, absolutely not. I'm not doing it anymore. And then I still am doing it somehow. <laughs> um, it was a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, uh, to auction off, um, things that folks donated and, uh, describe them and, um, test out, you know, a little bit of, uh, stand-up comedy skill that I don't really have that much of, but enough for Amersa, I think, to, 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 earn, to earn some money. You know, one other good thing about being the auctioneer is I knew what was coming up. And so I, I could, I, well, let's just say that I could buy some things at the auction that were, <laughs> that were really good things, some of which were Red Sox tickets from, from Patrick O'Connor or the famous, um, you know, night with Pat and Jeff, although usually I did not bid on that. <laughs> Let other people have wonderful nights with Pat and Jeff, but um, but also the uh, the wonderful um, uh, boat the the boat trips uh, on um, on our executive director Doreen Bader's uh, boat, or actually her and Dave, her husband Dave's boat, um, and uh, and he was the captain of the boat, and the boat trips were fantastic, and others took advantage of this too. Um, and had wonderful times on that boat. And the only thing I can tell you about um, the time that I got to um, go on the boat was that what what happens on the boat stays on the boat because that's that's pretty much <laughs> that's how we describe boat trips. So um, and it's really it's unfortunate that 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 we can't uh, do that anymore. I really miss that. That was such a wonderful um, wonderful option for people at the auction and was always successful for getting um, good funds into the organization. And last question. What, what's your favorite thing about Immersa? Uh, my favorite thing about Immersa is all the people in Immersa. And I, I know it's, uh, actually maybe people don't say that about other organizations come to think of it. If I think about a lot of other professional organizations that I am a member of, that might not be the first thing uh, I would say, even if I run across some folks that, uh, that I might enjoy spending some time with. But really Immersa, the people that Immersa, who come to Immersa, uh, they interact. Uh, we a lot. Uh, we interact a lot beyond the meeting, um, and uh, it's known. I think it's known as a place where uh, people can get together um, across disciplines, um, across geography, uh, for developing careers in a really big way. Uh, we I think Amersa has often promoted. Uh, at least within the organization, younger folks in the organization, which is really important, um, and connected um, senior people in the field with uh, with those who are who are younger. So just attending a meeting, even even the virtual meetings. Geez, I mean, it's hard to. It's been tough this year, but 
I think uh, even the virtual meeting was was a nice breath of fresh air done really well. And um, in previous years, of course, um, getting together in person and, um, and and being able to meet with people and help help bringing them up in their careers has been uh, has been terrific. So lots of great people at Immersa, and I think that's that's my favorite thing. Thank you for this conversation. Um, yeah, it was great to talk to you, Nick. Great to talk to you too. Um, and uh, looking forward to the next Amarsa meeting. Me too. Well, thank you, Dr. Sates and Bertha Lay for being with us here today. We thoroughly enjoyed this discussion on screening and brief intervention. And other questions in which America looms large. <laughs> and other questions, yes including boat trips. <laughs> we'll, we'll get another one of those for you. <laughs> to learn more about the ATTC Network and the Association for Multidisciplinary Education and Research in Substance Use and Addiction, please visit our websites at attcnetwork.org and immersa.org. For a transcript of this podcast and other related resources, please visit the ATTC Network website. This podcast is supported by funding from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS or SAMHSA. Information shared and views expressed reflect the speaker's best understanding of science or promising practices at the time of recording and should not be seen as directives. Content related to privacy and security in 42 CFR Part 2 presented during these sessions should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners are directed to discuss recommendations with their agency's legal counsel. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us again.